You know, Robert, that song uh, reiterates the stance I've mentioned in my own life, that uh, I'm indestructible until God is through with me. And I feel that about my father, who went to heaven in December, that he was indestructible till God was ready for him. And as your faith is, so be it unto you, the scripture says. So we want to stand in the power of Christ alone and know that nothing can pluck us from his hand. And the song uses that text from uh, John chapter 10 that we often talk about with the security of the believer that is our eternal security to also talk about our security in every way, including in this life. What I want to do for the next several weeks is, is unique, okay? And I'm going to do it from the New Testament, from the Gospels. I'm going to visit six passages, seven passages in the Gospels that show Jesus in a social setting where he is interacting with people in his day, people outside his discipleship group. And what I want to do is put a magnifying glass on those interactions and look at them and ask some questions about how we behave in the world. If we were to follow Jesus in our style of presence in the world, what would that look like? What would that style be? How would we interact with people? So for the next seven weeks, that's where I'll be. I'll be talking about social networking, join the good news conversation. And with the help of the worship team, I'm using metaphors from the electronic media to sort of help us think about how Jesus interacted with people. I'm going to follow that up with a different kind of series during the Lenten season. I want to talk to you about the politics of the passion as a follow-up to social networking. And we're going to look at the governor, the king, the high priest, the soldiers, the people who were involved in the trial and execution of Jesus, and ask the question, how are they behaving in their world as political figures, many of them, and how is Jesus reacting to them? And what lessons do I learn by his reaction and interaction? Young people, more than ever before in the history of the world, you have an opportunity to be present on an international scale with unbelievers. It's likely to happen to you that you will be on a plane and end up in a place where the word of Christ and the gospel of Christ is relatively unknown. Or you will be rubbing shoulders with people in the workplace or at school who really do not know the gospel. It is very important. In fact, it is vital that we who follow Jesus follow him in a way that communicates the gospel, not only with our words, but with our style, with our presence, with who we are among men and women of our day and time. I think there's a very distinctive and winsome way that Jesus relates to people. In fact, it's one of the reasons we just love him. We just love him. We read the stories and we think, what a wonderful Savior he is. How he loves people and cares for them and sees right through them. Lord, make me more like him. So we're going to look at Jesus in social settings, beginning with the visit to the temple when he was 12. All right? 
That's where we're going today. So go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 2. We're not too far out of Luke chapter 2 with the narratives about his infancy, his birth. And now we come to the one narrative we have about the boyhood of Jesus. And it will be like Moses. Moses suddenly realizes that he's connected to the Israelites. He kills that Egyptian soldier who's trying to beat one of his fellow uh, Israelites, and then he disappears for 20 years. And Jesus is going to uh, appear in the temple. We'll know him at age 12 in the temple, and then we won't know anything else again until he's 29 or 30 years old. That's where the story will pick up. But here in this event at the temple, there are some rich teachings and lessons to learn. Verse 41 of Luke chapter 2 says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now, I mentioned the Passover when we observe communion. I want you to connect it now, okay? Here we have a Passover celebration, 12 to 1400 years after the Passover itself was instituted. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. That is the prescription of the law. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. A story about a family that experiences turmoil in a holiday. How unusual. Do you have any turmoil in your holiday? Your holidays ever end up with unusual things happening? 
They experience turmoil in a holiday, and they discover things about their 12-year-old son that astonish them. And he says things to them that they do not understand. Did your 12-year-old ever say anything to you you did not understand? What? Isn't it interesting? Are you intrigued by it? Does, does it have a hook for you? You read through this and you're thinking, wait a minute. Let me go back through that again. What happens here? He stays behind? Say, first thing I see here. Go to the festival. They go to the festival. They go every year. It is a religious festival, or it has religious roots, okay? But 1,400 years after it was instituted, things have changed a little. There's a temple now instead of a tabernacle. We can't really appreciate how much of a cultural event it is for Jesus and his family to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. We think of it in idealized terms, that this is all just devout people who love God showing up for the festival. This is actually everybody in Israel showing up for the festival, whether they really believe or don't, whether they're secular or doubters, whoever they are, they show up for the festival. Everybody goes to Jerusalem. And some of them got angles on this. Later on, it's going to show up. The angriest you will ever see this 12-year-old boy is when he turns 33 and he goes to the festival. Nothing made him so mad. They went to the festival every year. Despite the fact that there were people taking economic advantage of the pilgrims, trying to make a buck for themselves in the temple, bringing animals into the outer court where they wailed and mooed and made it hard for pilgrims to pray. He went to the festival. Every festival is like this, you know. Every cultural event. And Christians have, all these 2,000 years, been somewhere on the continuum between don't go to the festival and go to the festival and do everything everybody else does. Some of them been way over here. Some of them been way over here. And you're somewhere on this scale. Now, you may think you dropped into this scale right at where God wants you. And you know just how to treat Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and New Year's and Mardi Gras... You're at the perfect place. But I will tell you that participation in cultural events like these are often our most perplexing challenges as believers. And we have heated arguments about whether we ought to go to parties and festivals or not. 
And they could have argued about this one. But they made a practice of going to the festival. Not only here, but it turns out in studying the life of Jesus that he shows up at wedding receptions and parties that tax collectors throw at their houses. He shows up in so many places that the people who are stricter with their religious laws say, what is he doing here? Doesn't he know what's going on? Doesn't he know these people he's rubbing shoulders with? What's, what's he think he's doing? And there are people who have different views of these parties and the folks he's rubbing shoulders with. But I'm pointing out to you something about the style of Jesus, not just with his family when he was 12, but throughout his ministry. Jesus shows up at these cultural events. I want to suggest to you that if you follow the pattern of Jesus in his boyhood as well as in his ministry, you're not going to live in a monastery somewhere. You're going to be part of your world. And I think that's good for you to be part of your world. Because how are you going to tell your world that God loves them if you're not there? Now, I'm not saying to you, just go and do everything everybody else does at all the festivals. I'm saying to you as a thinking, devoted follower of Jesus, engage your world. Get out there in it. Rub shoulders with people in this world who maybe live differently than you do and have different understandings of now and the hereafter and that it is good to do so and it follows the pattern of Jesus. Now, I was raised... You're looking at a guy that's, that came up in a house where we did not play cards, we did not go to movies, we did not dance, and the do-nots had a long list, all right? I grew up in an anti-cultural family where we really set ourselves against the culture, and it was good for me. And I think there are ways in which we must set ourselves against the culture. But we do so as we engage it, as we are part of it. And my own style and sense of being in the world has broadened as I've grown closer to the Savior and known more about Him. I'm more comfortable in the setting where there are people different from me than I used to be when I was a boy. And I think that's good. Another thing. Hang out after the meeting. Jesus goes to the festival. His family leaves. He stays behind. 
This is why carpenters are always behind schedule. Joseph's got things to do. He's got buildings to build. He's got construction to take care of. And his son disappears on him. And it takes three days unexpectedly out of his life. He's got to go find Jesus. Where is that boy? Jesus hung out after the meeting. This is a suggestion for you, all right? You can show up in the formal setting and leave and not get to know anybody there. But if you hang out a little bit after the meeting, people get real. When the program's over, And you go and start talking, introducing yourself, finding out who they are. People get real. They start telling you about what's on their heart. You start getting to know them. And Jesus is comfortable in this setting. I know that not all of us have the gregarious, outgoing personality of this boy, age 12. I know we're not all built that way emotionally and and in our approaches and how we build relationships, but just observing Jesus. He is comfortable in this setting of dialogue, discussion, the give and take, asking the questions, giving them answers, asking more questions. He's okay with that. I think he is perfectly comfortable, the Lord Jesus, in the after-meeting setting where Nicodemus shows up and says, Hey, talk to me. He's glad to. So I suggest to you that you engage your world, okay? That you get out there in it and find who, who lives in it. And that once you get out there in your world, meet people. And I'd suggest that you sit down with the teachers I think that'd be okay too Jesus does he's son of God he's son of man and he's sitting down with the teachers and interacting with them we know the truth which is in Christ Jesus knows the truth about God and the world better than anybody who tried to teach him that day. He had the fundamentals down. But there is a, there is a humility about Jesus sitting down with the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions that is beautiful to me. You didn't become an expert in all disciplines when you received Christ as Savior. That didn't nullify your need for further education in all kinds of areas. Sometimes we have a haughtiness and arrogance in the world that is unbecoming to us. 
And we suppose that we must know the answer to every question and be dogmatic about it. And if we don't know all the answers, then we're fumbling around in the world. That's not the style of Jesus. I never pick up on arrogance in Jesus when I read how he interacts with people. You say, well, maybe these are just really good teachers. I, I think these are the same guys that he will have seven woes for later on. Them and their students, you know, the ones who follow up after them. No, these are the guys that he really gets upset about later on. These are the teachers. They're from the schools of Hillel and Gamaliel. They're working out their theology and their philosophy. And just as with the Passover, Jesus will later come in and clean out that temple with these teachers with whom he sits now. He will later say, woe to you. You're whitewashed separate full of dead men's bones. You load up people with so much religious duty and you yourself won't touch it with one finger. He says, you who put the law and its locks and its cuffs and its chains on other people, but you yourselves don't even keep it. And yet he's sitting there listening to the teachers say let's have a positive attitude toward education and learning this is the educational setting of the first century this is how the teachers taught and how the students learned they did it in the question and answer dialogue Jesus, Jesus is humbling himself. He's condescending to be a part of the classroom. He's sitting down in his desk. And he's listening and asking questions. Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, we don't need to be intimidated by people who know more than us about other things and disciplines and all kinds of things. Don't be intimidated by them. You have a testimony. It's your own personal story of how God saved you and changed you and brought you new life in Christ. And your testimony belongs to you and it is unassailable. People may believe it and they may not when you tell them that Jesus changed your life and saved you and forgave your sin. But it is your testimony. It belongs to you. And no matter who the teacher is or the professor or how much he knows, your testimony is powerful as he hears it. And for you to tell others what you yourself have seen and heard is a legitimate exercise in human dialogue. It is politically correct for us to tell what we have seen and heard. Even if the culture says it's not, all right? Freedom of speech and freedom of religion guarantees that you can go with all the passion in your heart into the marketplace and share what God has done for you. And you don't need to clip its wings.
But as you do so, you let the other speak as well. You dialogue in the marketplace with one another, believing that the truth which is in Christ will prevail in the marketplace of ideas. And because it is the truth, it is more powerful than any other spoken word. Still to this day, 2,000 years after he walked the planet, to utter the name of Jesus is to change entirely the dynamics of a conversation. You know this, don't you? When you are in the social setting and you are dialoguing with people, listening and asking questions, and you speak the name of Jesus, there is a power that is injected into that conversation that is palpable. In fact, so often, we hesitate to speak the name of Jesus because we know the conversation will collapse into our lap. And people will say, at least to themselves, well... Where's he going with that? What just happened? Because there is such power in the name of Jesus. You know, it was the controversy right after Jesus rose from the dead and the, and the disciples were preaching in Jerusalem. They said, by what name have you done this that this man born blind now sees? That this lame man now walks. It is by the name of Jesus, Peter and John said. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Armed with the name of Jesus, you can go out into the social settings of your day, your time, your place, into youth groups, into schools, into business settings, into festivals and parties. And bring up Jesus, who is a vital and integral part of your life. And when you do, you are introducing people to the good news of the gospel. Hone your skills in listening. We need to be quicker to listen as believers, and sometimes slower. To talk. Jesus was listening and asking them questions. When you listen, when you really listen to an unbeliever, to somebody who's coming from a different place entirely than you, you are giving them respect. You're saying to them, I genuinely care about you. And I'm trying to understand what you're saying, not thinking about my answer and the next thing I'm going to say, not passing over your comment to me. I really want to hear it. Because faith in Christ works in real-world people and folks with real problems and real needs and people just like you, wherever you come from. And so I'm listening because I want to know what's on your heart and who you are. Listening is a powerful discipline. If you will listen at your workplace and to your friends at school, they will talk to you because you listen. Do you know there are people that are getting paid to listen? 
That's what they do. They sit there for an hour and go, uh huh. Uh huh. They just listen, they get paid for it. Well, as disciples of Jesus, to follow his style and his presence in the world, we need to hone those listening skills. Get rid of the impatience that makes us hurry on to something else when people start talking about what's really on their heart. And we need to learn the skill of asking questions. It's still a great way to teach. And it's, it's such a wonderful way to communicate good news and to unsettle those who are comfortable in their own presuppositions to ask the question that goes to the heart of the matter. And the rabbis did it with such skill. They taught their students how to ask questions. And often Jesus would field a question like a softball. What is the greatest commandment? You know, he didn't give an answer to the expert in the law who asked that question. He asked him a question back. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, he throws it back. He says, you have a Bible, what do you think it says? And the expert in the law responds with an answer. To develop your listening skills the discipline of listening, the patience, the love, the kindness that it takes to hear another human share with you their heart, to learn how to ask the question that makes them seek the answer, it's powerful. It's a great way to be in your world. It's what Jesus was doing when we meet him here. I can't look at this passage without thinking about Joseph and Mary who have somehow misplaced their 12-year-old. They thought he was with somebody else. And they got down the road before they realized. And they started checking with the relatives. Uncle Bob, have you seen Jesus? No, I hadn't seen him. Well, maybe, with his, maybe he's with friends from the other side of the street there in Nazareth. Have you guys seen Jesus? No, we hadn't seen him. They start looking for Jesus. It reminds me of people in our day who think they've outgrown Jesus. They're going on now to other things. They've discovered other religious teachings they didn't know about when they were younger. And so they get on this road not even really realizing they've left Jesus behind and they discover somewhere in the journey that they no longer sense the comforting, powerful presence of the Lord Jesus. And they have to retrace their steps when it happens and go back like Joseph and Mary did to Jerusalem where last they knew he was with them. And that's where they find him, having retraced 
their steps. I would say to everybody in the room, no matter how long ago it was you first met Christ, it is an important thing to look at your life and see if you indeed have the companionship of the Savior on this road you are taking. And if you discover as you look around that it's not a path he would have taken. And somewhere along the way you and Christ have parted company. That you retrace your steps to the place where you knew him well and maybe knew him first and reconnect with the one who is the Savior of all men and particularly of we who believe. I think 2012, the first day of the year, is a great place to say, Lord, I want the companionship of the Savior with me in this life journey that I'm taking, in this intellectual pursuit in which I am involved, in this occupation, this business that I am pursuing, whatever it is that is really dominant in your life. I want the companionship of the Savior in 2012. I want to know His presence every day when I get up. I want to be able to dialogue with Him as I go through my day. I want to test Things. I want to test the stuff that comes into my ears and into my eyes through the teachers that I run into. I want to test it through my relationship, that living relationship with the Savior. So I know how to evaluate what I hear and what I see. So in 2012, Lord, walk next to me. Walk close to me. Be my constant companion and friend. And don't let me take a turn that leaves you behind. There may be somebody in this room who has quite a journey to retrace your steps. It's been a long time since you and Jesus had a vital conversation and, and that personal relationship has grown mighty cold. There is nothing you could pursue in this new year that will outshine the relationship you have with Christ. Jesus paid it all. All to him, I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Bow with me, please. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, this would be a wonderful day, this first day of the new year, in which to say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I confess my sin, and I ask for your forgiveness. I open my heart to you. I want you in my life, and I give my life to you. What a great way to start this new year. Maybe for you, it's a renewal of the covenant with Christ. It's presenting your body again as a living sacrifice to the God who made you and who loves you and the Christ who died for you.
this is your worship experience in this first day of the new year. In fact, probably a, an appropriate worship experience for everybody in this room. Today, Lord, I'm yours. Body, soul, and spirit. Every relationship, every possession, every part of me. You are Lord. God, let it be so in this family of faith, among each individual believer, and in my heart too, that you reign supreme. Lord, we commit unto you ourselves, our ministry, our work, our church, our life together, and ask that you might use us for your glory in this new year, that we might not only be present in the assembly during public worship to offer our own prayers and hear your word and sing the praises, but we might be present in your world representing you to a world that needs you. God, let it be so in this new year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.